Welcome to another episode of the Repro Film Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Dyer, and it is always the most exciting time of the month for me to share a conversation with a brilliant filmmaker, artist, activist, or repro health expert with you. This month, we are featuring the short film Counterfeit Kanku from Indian filmmaker Reema Maya, which screened at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Counterfeit Kanku is an exploration of social issues that plague the daily life of an Indian woman. It is the story of Smita, who was trying to find a house to rent in Mumbai. Smita, who has recently found her way out of an abusive marriage, is unable to rent an apartment because of her divorced status. The film is an intimate perspective on the quote-unquote ideal Indian woman in contemporary urban India. It addresses housing discrimination and marital rape, so trigger warning. The film comes from a deep sense of anger and helplessness about the fact that the need for a roof over your head can be exploited as an opportunity to employ social prejudice. For those unfamiliar, kanku is the Marathi word for red sindor or vermilion powder that married Hindu women wear in the parting on their head. Counterfeit kanku therefore denotes signs of marriage that have lost their meaning. This beautifully shot film shows so much in such a short amount of time and with limited dialogue. It is a reminder that what goes unsaid in society often speaks the loudest, and in this case, it is stereotypes, social expectations, and cultural norms that for too long go unchallenged. You may be wondering what this all has to do with reproductive issues. Well, everything actually. In fact, we are always trying to find ways to underscore that reproductive issues are intersectional, meaning they don't just sit in a silo or category by themselves. A person's reproductive decisions are often informed by their living situation, their income status, their geographical location, their age, their employment status, whether they have a support system around them or not, and how the laws where they live impact their everyday lives. In the beginning of the film, we see Smita at a clinic getting an abortion, but that is only one aspect of her story. So I wanted to ask Rima about all of this, as well as talk about the rest of her work through the company she started called Catnip Productions, and how filmmaking first grabbed a hold of her as a child. While most children went on family vacations, Rima spent her summer breaks attending screenwriting and directing workshops. From films and music videos to commercials, she has tried her hand at everything. Rima received 16 awards for her first short film at the age of 21, and today her career is nothing short of inspiring to watch, as I've been doing via Instagram stalking, I mean research. Her clients include Puma, Netflix, H&M, and many more, alongside the numerous film projects she is working on, the most recent of which just screened at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. No big deal. So enough chit-chat from me. Here is Rima Maya to talk about all things filmmaking, storytelling, and counterfeit kanku. Rima, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And I'd love to start off by learning how, first of all, before we talk about the film, how you got into the film industry. Can you talk about your ambition, especially as a young girl? I, I love this story. Tell us all about it. Well, I come from a pretty unique background in that I, my, both my parents are born and raised in the slums of Bombay and they still live there when I was born. Uh, and very, like, even as a kid, as a young girl, I would find myself feeling very emotionally overwhelmed by just like social political things that were happening in the world, even if they didn't have a direct impact on my life. 
And I used to think, you know, most people don't even think twice about these things. Why do I get so emotionally overwhelmed about it? And my conclusion was that until and unless you don't uh, feel strongly about something, you're never going to do anything about it. And so I started thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do? How do I do it? And films just made sense because they have such great sense of influence. People already, you know, watch films and want to copy behavior. It's almost a form of social validation. Uh, it's the closest you can come to actually being someone else. So it has this incredible capacity to incite empathy. And it's a really smart and efficient medium because you work really hard and you make it once, but then it exists forever. So my love for filmmaking didn't come from a sense of romance or romanticism for the big screen. It really was a very rational, observational decision uh, for the things that I really wanted to say. So uh, very early on, you know, in school, other kids would go on summer vacations and I would do uh, direction workshops and screenwriting workshops and theater workshops and stuff like that. So my journey to become a filmmaker started very, very young, like at the age of 10, 12. And uh, yeah, I would be in these these classrooms full of 30-somethings, just, you know, uh, being this little aspiring filmmaker. So um, my entire life has, in a lot of ways, been uh, working towards just being a writer-director. It's almost like the film industry called to you rather than you seeking it out. It was like the thing that became your voice and medium and to share about so many issues that you're passionate about absolutely and you know it's so interesting because nobody around me is from the media industry or the film industry and they really had no idea at all how these things work or you know even the the difference between like what a director does or what a producer does like i come from absolutely zero background and it's really strange that i very intensely got into like I'm gonna become a writer director so early on that I'm really glad that I did because I love yeah I love that story and I love stories about people who have no connection to the film industry and then get to where you are today I think it's really um, inspirational and and brave too you know you're stepping outside your comfort zone so I think that's really inspirational for especially filmmakers who are listening to this who also have no connection um, so let's talk about your films this month we're highlighting your acclaimed short film Counterfeit Kung Fu, which screened at the Sundance Film Festival in 2018 no big deal um, just you know the biggest film festival for filmmakers on earth um, where did the inspiration for the story and the main character come from? The inspiration for that really did come from when my mother had to, so my parents separated and my mother had to find a house for herself on rent in Mumbai. And everywhere she went, she just faced intense housing discrimination, which was really infuriating because, you know, she was always the one financially running the household. She's really strong and had the money that she needed. She's from Mumbai. She's, you know, she has a sense of community here. She's not an outsider. Uh, not that that justifies anything. She really had everything in her favor. This is her city. She had the money for it. And still, everywhere she went, the first conversation was, where's your husband? And are you alone? Like, are you a family or a bachelor? And she would try to explain that she has a daughter, but she's, I was studying abroad. I wasn't here at that time. So I remember being really far away and feeling so angry and feeling so helpless about the entire situation that I wrote that an angry screenplay <laughs> back in 2011 and just put it away. I never really thought of making, of like actually making the film. 
I just wanted to vent. Uh, but many years later, after just doing a lot of like advertising and commission projects, I needed to make something very personal that sort of resets my artistic compass. And that's why I picked up the script that was very, very personal. We got a small group of family and friends together. And that's how Counterfeit Kumpu happened. And has your mom seen the film? What what are her what has been her? My reaction? mom is the producer of the oh, film. Beautiful. And she's an absolute badass. And she's the reason we had access to the spaces that we that we did. We have we had access to the characters, the actors that we did. Uh, it's all her goodwill and her community. And we've shot so much in spaces that are from the neighborhood that she grew up in and that that we lived in, which is Kurad Village in Malati. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful full, full circle moment. That almost made me tear up a little bit. That's so great. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that she had her experience validated in this way and you got to go on that journey with her through film. And and something that I really love about this story of Smita is how intersectional so many of the issues are from reproductive healthcare. We see Smita getting an abortion at the start of the film, stigma, like you said, around being a divorced or a single woman, uh, classism, sexism, housing discrimination. How did these issues play into the stereotype of the quote-unquote ideal Indian woman that you were looking to examine or dissect in the film? I knew that I wanted to choose someone who really has societally speaking, no agency, which is why I chose this very like lower middle class woman who uh, is really still living in the slums with her husband and is, has been trying to escape this very abusive marriage and has now started like her journey on financial independence. I think what was really important is that even though society wasn't affording her any sense of agency, she took that agency for herself in understanding that marital rape is wrong. I feel like so many people don't even have that realization. I think that's one of her biggest moments of agency. The second one is her decision that she doesn't have to spend the rest of her life being abused like that. And the third moment of agency for her is her decision of not bringing a child into a less than ideal, you know, life. And I think in she really was a person that yeah, society didn't think they were affording any agency to, but her agency was hers to to take and to claim. Uh, and I wanted to sort of explore, yeah, the intersectionality and the, the sense of discrimination through these aspects because she's not completely divorced yet, but she's just on the precipice of it, right? It's that first step you take, getting out of the violence. And the question really is, we, we talk about, like, everyone agrees, right, that domestic violence is wrong. And everybody agrees that emotional abuse is wrong and uh, husbands shouldn't you know, beat their wives or rape their wives. I think morally, we as a society, everyone agrees with that. And we applaud women for taking that step to get out of uh, these situations. And we're like, oh, that's so brave. But what are we offering as a society for the women who've actually taken that step? There's no infrastructure for them. So Smita has escaped this really violent situation and literally doesn't have a roof over her head. And there are no opportunities for her to actually have that independent, safe life. So that really is the question. Okay, someone manages to do everything they can to get out of this really difficult situation. But what next? Is that sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, thinking about marital rape, the fact that 
it was only criminalized in the early 90s in the US and in India not that long ago, correct? I need to double check if it's even illegal. I know it wasn't criminalized uh, when I was making the film, which is five, six years ago. I need to double check what the current situation is. But it's it's absolutely bizarre. And actually, while I was saying, you know, what I was saying a, a, a minute ago, in that oh, all of us agree that marital rape is wrong, we like, all of us, as in literally people like us, who are like-minded, agree. Um, but there is unfortunately a decent amount of population of people who maybe don't understand why it's rape or if the husband is you know, expecting sex from his wife. And even that cultural lack of knowledge leads to laws not being passed or, you know, marital rape not being criminalized up until the point when there is such huge public outrage. And so it's on us, but also the laws need to reflect what the culture is. And if the culture is not looking at these women as needing support, then we get what we get in the law. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see. And and I'll put some information in the, in the intro and the outro about um, marital rape laws, just for context for people who want to know. How pervasive is this stereotype in India today? I mean, have you, I know you talked about your mother, but have you ever felt this pressure in your life? Have do you see it with the people that you know today and, and some of your peers and the women that you know? Well, with housing discrimination? Yeah, with this stereotype of the ideal Indian woman and, and housing discrimination, all those things that your mom experienced. Oh, it's very, very prevalent. I mean, housing discrimination uh, is not just against single women. It's also against like actual bachelors, like unmarried. Uh, basically, anyone who's not a family finds it really hard to find a house especially single women. Uh, a lot of people from minority religions find it really hard to find a house. There are entire neighborhoods where you won't find a house if you eat non-vegetarian food. It's, yeah, it's, it becomes very, very prescriptive and the moral policing is, is pretty intense, I would say. So that's to do with housing discrimination. But the idea of the ideal Indian woman, I think, there's two parts to it. There are certain sections of society that are a little bit more conservative where it's very on the nose. And a lot of the other uh, the other side of it is a lot of internalized conditioning. So I feel like because we've grown up from with it and we're, we've it's been constantly reinforced on us, I think we've also internalized to such a great extent the idea of what this ideal Indian woman used to be like even when we're talking about uh sexual liberation right like i would feel so guilty till way into my 20s if i were just engaged in anything sexual because i would just feel like i'm being a bad daughter they're so deep-seated and it takes so much constant questioning to understand what is part of your own personality and what is just part of this intense conditioning and honestly like life is easier if you just adhere to that idea <laughs> it's unfair it's also the conversation about intergenerational trauma, right? Like someone has to stand up and say, hey, no, if you're telling me not to wear sleeveless clothes, I don't think that makes sense. So I'm not going to agree to that. And then you fight, fight, fight. And then there comes a time where people understand and then it's easier for the next person. So I think that those first steps are really important. And I think as important as it is to be respectful to your elders or the generation before you, it's equally important to take the responsibility to uh, have these difficult conversations with them and to educate them and to challenge them in the right way. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I come from an Indian family too. I grew up in Australia, 
But for me, the, there was issue of living with your partner before you were married. I mean, there was it was very taboo and my cousins and friends in other Indian families, it was like such a big deal. But then I did it and other people did it. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's, it's no big deal. But I sometimes would talk to my aunties and they were like, oh yeah, you know, Rakesh is living with his girlfriend that, you know, have those shifty eyes. I'm like, Oh, great. I hope he's happy. And then they'd realize, oh, it's not such a big deal yeah. unless you make it a big deal. I don't know. That's a small example. And granted, no, absolutely. We're living in Australia, but, it, you know, just those examples of, well, let's look at the bigger context. Y- your family has love, you have great relationships, and you respect each other. And that's the main thing. And people are healthy and thriving. And so I think once you put that into perspective and realize, oh, yeah, why are we holding on to these rules? And some people want to hold on to themselves for whatever reason, and that's okay. But, you know, when we force it on other people and make it a societal quote-unquote rule, then it's like, well, why? Let's question this and let's examine that. So, yeah, I think that it's really important to see how this is being, you know, how you're showing this in film and using film as a medium to question these things and, and confront people with these stereotypes and what reaction have you gotten from Indian audiences specifically, but audiences in general? The reactions from the audiences have been amazing. I think what's been most striking is how universally resonant the film has been. And we're talking, you know, all the way from high school girls in France to uh, women in their sixties and seventies from Brooklyn. Everybody has really felt so strongly and related to the film and everyone has like an anecdote to share about something that that it reminded them of or that really resonated with them. I remember specifically there was this one Indian woman who I met at a screening in LA and she said that she's separating from her husband after you know like 18 or 20 years of marriage and watching the film made her feel like it's going to be okay. And I thought that was a really, really big moment. We we ended up having a lot more international screenings than we did Indian screenings, but definitely the the custom crew screening where I had my family and friends there, that was a really special one. It was a really emotional one. And then I asked my grandmother if she figured what Smita was doing in that last scene. And she said that, oh yeah, she was just scratching herself, right? So now I'm like confused about whether she just didn't want to tell me or she like genuinely didn't get it which is more shocking (laughs) good on you for asking her that question (laughs) (laughs) oh wow because honestly like it's not beyond imagination that there might be a lot of women in our society who haven't had the exposure to understand that women can naturally pleasure themselves yeah yeah not the most spoken about thing Mm. And again, it goes back to those taboos, you know, what is the ideal woman? What's the proper thing to do? What's the way to interact with your own sexuality? Are you even allowed to do that? I mean, it goes back to all those internalized messages that we have. Um, I want to talk about social justice for a minute. And, you know, you touched on this earlier about your upbringing, about how passionate you are about using film as a, as a medium for social change. I'd love for you to um, talk about how you, you know, as a creative, how you interweave messages of social change or social justice with uh, a story on on camera, a story on screen? Like, how do you interweave the two? I think uh, with every project, the conversation is, uh, what is the objective, right? You need to have, at least I set specific objectives for myself at the beginning of a project. And as long as I'm meeting them, everything else is engineered around that. So if I need to 
talk about like in in counterfeit kungu for example the objective was to simply raise awareness about the fact that this problem exists so it's done in a very simplistic uh accessible way that is that just has this emotional thread and that ultimately only says that hey hasn't discrimination exists and it's unfair of course it's then layered with a lot of different things and then on other projects uh, depending again on who i want to talk to and what exactly i want to say and how nuanced i want it to be the protagonists and the story and the tone are sort of chosen are a really important rule that i personally follow is that if you're getting so many people together to work really hard and create something you might as well say something important and significant through it and respect your audience so that it entertains and impacts them so you're not just preaching i think the art that we create really comes so much from the life experiences that we've had consciously or subconsciously when i decide i want to say something i think the first thing that i do is look inward and and try to identify very instinctively what is that one thing that i feel so strongly that this just absolutely needs to be said right now and that is the beginning moment of the journey of any project from there you know the moment you've started the journey with what do i need to say there is always an experience that is attached to it and there are always characters that are attached to it that come onto the table and then of course you you craft it but i think because the intention comes from a place of no i wouldn't necessarily say social impact i would simply say just have a sense of social consciousness i think you then go from there but this doesn't just that still limited to my independent fiction work i do a lot of advertising work and it finds its ways in a completely different form in the advertising projects which are you know brighter and glossier and uh, speaking to a completely different demographic through a completely different set of characters but somewhere the essence of what we want to say and our shared human condition remains similarly i do a lot of music videos and and there the format is different and you kind of draw from what a different genre artist has created which are these songs but again some sense of who you are and the essence of you always finds its way into pretty much everything that you do and i think because the the seed of who i am is someone that wants people to work together to towards a better world i think everything just goes from there I love that. That's so well said. And I was looking at on your Instagram, I think it was it an H&M commercial that you worked on? Yeah, and all the characters and the different scenarios and in the different rooms in the house and everything that they're saying. I and, and there was just such a sense of joy and love and togetherness then. Yeah, I think I was just thinking of that as you were mentioning that. So Yeah, that one that was such a fun project and that was the it was based on a poem that I wrote called Hope. and just it was just an exploration of oh you wrote and you narrated it right yes and i narrated it they were really sweet they were like i did the scratch version and i think they were just like oh just let's not get it recorded yeah that's beautiful yeah we'll have to link to that in the show notes because it's a really great example of some of the other work, types of work that you're doing today um and speaking of words i'd love to talk about the title for a second counterfeit kanku can you explain up explain how you came up with it what it means and how it wasn't the original title that you chose right yeah i am so bad at naming my films i have had some really terrible terrible titles and i feel like that's 
the one thing i find so difficult to do and i end up spending way too much time being extremely indecisive about the title that the film's going to have but counterfeit kunku uh, kunku means kumkum it's like it's the red vermilion uh, powder that married women uh, married hindu women wear in the parting of their hair it signifies that they're married so in marathi it's called kunku which is so smita in the film is maharashtrian and uh, counterfeit because it's fake and it the the title really talk, speaks about fake symbols of societal institutions that you need to sort of display as an id card <laughs> to just get through the basic necessities of life i had some help from friends i remember sort of doing these focus group sessions with a bunch of different friends just throwing my long list of names at them and seeing what sticks and i think it was through one of these jam sessions uh with a couple of fellow filmmakers that they sort of pushed me and said no it has to be more it has to be more and i think that's how we arrived arrived at counterfeit kunku mm i mean it's a lot of pressure a title because it's going to have all this meaning and you want it to you know have all this symbolism but it's just such a perfect um indicator of not only the physical powder that the the married women wear but also all the symbols and all the the issues that you're talking about so i think it's it's really brilliant and i've been watching social media clips of you and actress kani kusrati and, and you know doing interviews and and something that i love that you spoke about in interviews was that she didn't speak a word of hindi or marathi before doing this film so how did you work around the language barrier in preparing to shoot and how did you choose her and Kani is absolutely incredible. It was a common friend uh, and filmmaker Anand Gandhi who recommended that I should definitely meet her. So I met her for coffee for the first time, and I wanted to talk to her about the script. And within the first two minutes, she told me that she doesn't speak Hindi, like let alone Marathi, that she doesn't understand Hindi at all. And I, I sort of didn't even bring the film up to her, and I, I just we just generally caught up. But I went back home and I couldn't. stopped being her as smita's face i was just like we had just become imprinted onto that character and i mean of course she has this really striking face and she's incredibly incredibly talented so i think i i hit her up again i said hey this is there's this film and you know it has i think i counted the number of lines smita has yeah. uh, and it was like seven lines or something uh really not that many so i said okay it's these many lines and you know should we do it and she was amazing so she understands phonetics really well so i would say the lines and she would sort of emulate it after me yeah yeah there was just this one scene where um it was like a one shot one take of her just reacting to something that someone was saying off screen and yeah can we got it in like two takes she's she's awesome <laughs> she's brilliant i mean she says so much just in her facial expression and body language too which is the mark of a great actress but wow i mean so so talented for her to to bring that to life you know in verbal and non-verbal ways so i i love that story and she's she's definitely brilliant i got so lucky i'm really lucky that she was she agreed to be a part of this project yeah she's amazing and what do you hope audiences especially our repro film audiences and listeners will love most or think about after watching counterfeit kung fu and people who have who have never seen it before and I'm going to watch it for the first time. Wow, that's a really interesting question. Usually I go into screenings with zero expectations of how the audience will react because it's such a subjective experience and I think we've kept the film 
loose ended enough for you to take from it what what you want but usually there are two things that i think that people feel really strongly about one is the abortion sequence at the beginning and the marital rape aspect of it so like the marriage and sexual agency aspect of it the second is housing discrimination and how just absolutely ridiculous that idea is i mean how can you not find a house to rent if you have done nothing wrong and you have the funds to pay for it and i would be really keen to see how people react to the last scene because i think that's a really special special scene and it is such a moment of joy and victory in the smallest smallest way it's the only victory she has right so i think i am very curious to see how how the audience reacts to those aspects and i really hope that this film in a smaller big way ignites conversations about sexual agency and marital rape and what do you do once someone actually steps out of an abusive situation what then and how can we as a community provide better support at such a difficult time well at the beginning you spoke about how film has become a way for you to talk about issues that you care about and you know this film really sums that up so beautifully and just a microcosm of all the work that you're doing so thank you for making this film and for sharing it with the world i think it's really impactful and engaging as well as entertaining so thank you so much but before you go can you tell us what you are working on right now and where can we continue following your projects and general life events that you want us to know about well i have a new baby uh not an actual baby a new short film called nocturnal burger and uh, nocturnal burger had its world premiere at sundance just now um yeah congrats that's amazing thank you thank you oh, you were absolutely thrilled so nocturnal burger is just starting out on its festival journey we're we're going to some really exciting festivals next it's been yeah great to sort of go back to these spaces after counterfeit coco and just you know it feels like especially sundance i think really felt like homecoming and they feel like family and they've been such such a big sense of support for me over these years and like such great cheerleaders so that's the big thing that is happening i just uh, dropped this big music video uh, this hip hop music video for this amazing artist called divine which is doing really well and then there's like various long and short format projects that are always in the works You can follow my work on my company Catnips Vimeo page, and you can stay up to date with what I've been up to on Instagram. And my handle is Reemsan. Awesome, awesome. And you did that. You did something for Netflix in India recently. Was there? I saw some video clips on your Instagram. <laughs> There's so much. So I actually have like three alter egos. I do a lot of work in the music space. I do a lot of uh, work in the advertising space, but like big conceptual campaigns. I did one for Puma called Proper Lady. That won the YouTube Works Best Long Form Storytelling Award a couple of years ago. Did this ad for Bumble that won the Blue Elephant for Best Writing, and etc. etc. So that's the advertising work, and then there's my independent fiction work. which can't feed conco and nocturnal burger are a part of the netflix work that that you mentioned are these like it's kind of a cross between the first and second thing i did this music video for their valentines day campaign a few years ago called love stories which it's like this warm fuzzy love story between two brown boys you should check it out and then i did this big uh, hip hop music video for them that brought together divine bachan junita gandhi or these three 
incredible and successful Indian artists and singers and rappers uh, together for the first time in this like epic music video. So that's another thing that I did for them. And then I did a few more things, a bunch of stuff. Yes, be sure to follow Rima Maya on Instagram and you get to see her amazing Netflix work. You get to see her in action behind the camera on set with these big celebrities. Uh, you get to see her H&M work and her short films. And this is, it's just really wonderful. So if you're anything like me, you will be spending plenty of time stalking her work and liking everything and sharing. So do all the things. But Rima, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Since we mentioned it in the interview and weren't sure of the actual data, I did a bit of digging and learned that the US outlawed marital rape across the nation in 1993, but India only made it illegal in 2022. So it's not hard to imagine the cultural bias and patriarchal standards still causing harm to women even today. With that in mind, be sure to watch Counterfeit Kung Fu in this month's Repro Periodical by heading to reprofilm.org. And if you haven't already, sign up to the periodical while you're there to receive every episode of this podcast straight to your inbox every month. You can check out more of Reema's work by following her on Instagram at Reemsen and check out more of the film at Counterfeit Kung Fu. Share this episode with a friend and help us spread the Repro Film message and mission. The Repro Film Podcast is executive produced by Mama Film, hosted and produced by me, Asha Dyer, edited by Kylie Brown, with original music by Paris Jane and Maurice Anthony. The periodical is programmed by Neha Aziz and written by Emily Christensen. Alex Gambardi is our social media manager and Rebecca Sosa is our distribution and impact strategist. You can find us on social media at Repro Film on Instagram and at Repro Film Fest on Twitter. I look forward to bringing you our next conversation next month. Bye for now.